Earlier this week, I had a great, insightful, encouraging conversation with my friend and brother Lecrae, who is an award-winning hip-hop artist and author, and I think you're going to find the conversation to be super insightful. Uh, It gives a glimpse into things that both of us have confronted and dealt with uh, in our lives, and Lecrae knew me way back when uh, when I was a senior pastor in Atlanta and we actually collaborated at some conferences and events and I had not actually seen him face to face this was we had a video conversation in a very long time we DM and encourage each other all the time but I want you to hear this conversation it is about the intersection of race politics Christianity, religion, white supremacy, and so much more. Uh, Both of us were super transparent and just shared our hearts, encouraging each other the entire way, all right? Uh, The conversation was recorded, if I have my time right, I think just uh, minutes before the inauguration, and uh, I'm excited for you to hear it, all right? This is Sean King. And you are listening to the 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 breakdown. The breakdown. The breakdown. As I've watched you over the past few years, a lot of your struggles and challenges have been very similar to my struggles and challenges as we grapple with the intersection of race, racism, faith, uh, religion, identity, justice, all of these things in one. And so you you have a, a, a brand new book out called I Am Restored, How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love it, man, if you could even just start out even by just telling the people why you came to write that book and tell that story. Yeah, well, you know, anybody who knows my history or or the worlds that I have kind of walked in knows that there's been a faith component to it. And um, and so, you know, me titling the book that was only kind of a sliver of what I was going to actually get into when I started writing, but I knew that people, that was how people knew and experienced me. And so I wanted to say, all right, well, let, let me walk you through one, this journey of saying the religiosity or this Western evangelical uh, mindset that has dominated church culture is what I'm leaving behind. And then I can get into the why. I can get into the historical traumas. I can get into the uh, racial traumas. I can get into the political um, uh, 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 inconsistencies, and and for me, that was how I was able to just to to express all of those things. Man, um, man, there's so much that I, that I want to talk with you about. How much time do you have for real? Because I don't want to jam you up on your schedule. Oh man, you know we we got a we got an hour. <laughs> all right, so let's just let's just wrap for a minute. You know. Um, you know, in um, in Dallas, Texas, there was uh, a young brother named Botham Jean that was killed. And uh, he was shot and killed in his home by a police officer, Amber Geiger. And 
I had said something about Botham that I, and I've come to know his family really well, and I've, I'm good friends with his sister and, and, uh, and, and have, known, have met both of his parents. Like, they're really good people. Mm. And Botham was a devout Christian, a devout believer. And I said something about Botham that, and some people thought I was dissing him, and I just, it was just a reality for him. Botham was a young black man. He was in his early 20s. He was a young black man that white people loved. Mm. And it wasn't because, I don't mean to be harsh, it wasn't because he was a, a sellout or, or, or anything like he He had a really gregarious personality and he came over here from the Caribbean as an international student and attended an evangelical college. And he was loved at this college. You know, he, he was in the choir. He was in all the ministries. He then started working at uh, Price Waterhouse Cooper, this accounting company in Dallas. And white folk loved both of them there. And one of the things that both of them was struggling with as the Black Lives Matter movement began, he posted about this, was he felt that he had a lot of access to white spaces and white people, but he was increasingly frustrated, obviously having no idea that police violence would eventually take his own life. Mm-hmm. But he was frustrated with injustice in America, and he was, tr- he was struggling to figure out how do I use this access that I get in these white spaces with this frustration that I, that I have. And one thing that you've talked about way more than I've talked about is for a long time, that was even my story was I was a pastor mm-hmm. and uh, Lecrae, most people don't even know that about me. I was about me. to say, not you, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> was rolling over like eyes yeah. yeah, you know, it was a huge part. I mean, uh, I was a pastor for the first two-thirds of my adult life. And I thought it was something I would do forever. I mean, it was a deep part of my identity. And one of the things that I, I saw myself as a bridge builder um, between cultures and people, and I always had access to where I could, I could go to any community and feel comfortable and, and feel rather welcomed and in 2014 and 2015, when I started speaking out against police brutality, that stuff kind of came crashing down for me. Right. And a lot of the relationships I have built with, uh, with Christian pastors and leaders, particularly white Christian pastors and leaders, man, they just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And as I experienced that, I started watching you and felt like I started seeing the same things happen to you. And I saw you in a lot of spaces where you were still, and it was a rare skill and I felt both of them had it as well. You were still fully yourself, fully black, Mm -hmm. fully embracing your past, your history, your culture, but still welcomed into white, predominantly white spaces sure. until 
until you started speaking out against racism and injustice. Mm-hmm. And, and it seemed like that welcome changed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, is that, is, is that how you, is that how it felt to you? Like, oh, I'm yeah. Gonna, yeah. Yeah. Very similar. And even to the degree, you know, as you, as you talk about both of them, um, I was, I was blindsided, you know, because I, I didn't even realize how heralded I was in those uh, white spaces, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And um, and I remember being asked a question. I was asked, um, you know, how does it feel to be an emerging evangelical leader? And I was like, a, a what? A, <laughs> right, right. You know, like, you know, and I had to step back and figure out what exactly does that mean? Um, and and now there's all kind of different perspectives and views on how do you navigate the, the nuance of that term evangelical, but um, but I just by and large rejected it because I saw it as more of a in a, a Western invention than mm-hmm. something that was uh, central to my faith. And right. uh, and and be, once I let that go, then I was freer to speak out. But it was traumatizing. I'm not going to lie to you because um, I had no idea that that love that was, you know, bestowed upon me by all those faith communities would turn into hatred. You know, I thought at least it would be indifference, but it, it turned into death threats. It turned into just pure, unadulterated hatred. And uh, and that was that was very shocking. Well, you know, and for people who are watching now, Lecrae, who may not know all of your story, you, you know, you were and and have continued to be a, a successful hip hop artist. And a lot of your message has been rooted in your faith. And I would watch you as a even as a as a fan. And I listened to your music and had it and, sh- and, and shared your music with my family. And I was excited that you would be able to, you could go to almost any type of Christian setting and be welcomed and celebrated. And there was a part of me that felt like what I saw happen to myself, I felt like it wouldn't happen to you. Mm. Because in a lot of those spaces, you were even more popular and more beloved and more supported even than I was like, Mm. I would go. I would go to a place, and I would. Uh, I'd go to a conference, and I would do like a little breakout workshop. But you would be like the main guy, <laughs> and and it, and it, and and so I felt like the. And you gave years and years of your life developing relationships in those communities. There's a part of me that I was actually hopeful that you could, as a as a Christian in often predominantly white spaces that you would be that your access mm-hmm. would not be limited when you started speaking out against injustice and racism and police brutality. And I don't know if you've ever heard, I've only, I think I, I have a book that came out last year and mm-hmm. I don't remember if I told this story in my book or, you know, but once you write the book and edit it, it's so hard. <laughs> uh, I don't remember if this made the book or not, but it's a it's a painful experience. I had a a guy that was a mentor of mine. I, I saw him as a mentor. He was a pastor of a church in um, 
in Louisiana, and he was a part of a, a large Christian denomination. And this guy had probably, he was, um, I didn't even, I didn't think of him as a white pastor. He was white. He was a pastor. But he was probably the most supportive of me, of any of the pastors in the country that had supported me and encouraged me. He had me speak at conferences and events. He had, um, he had prayed with me and encouraged me. He supported my family. Like when we needed financial help one time, Mm. he supported us. And uh, in 2014, a few months after Mike Brown was killed, I started getting those same death threats that you got. I started speaking out about police brutality. And, um, and people were posting my home address. They were posting pictures of my kids. And uh, I mean, I was, I had experienced hate before, but not on that level. Like I was really afraid for my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided I was going to reach out. I, I never do this, but I decided I was going to reach out to this pastor and ask if he would pray for me. I was, I was really low. And I was feeling, I was, as a man, I didn't feel like I could say publicly that I was afraid, nervous, and these types of things. I just, so man, the main way that we communicated normally was through DM on Twitter. And we we used to DM like every day. And so I went to his Twitter page and he had blocked me. Mm. (laughs) Like this guy was like a mentor to me. Mm. And uh, so I thought to myself, foolishly, Oh, he he has accidentally blocked me somehow. <laughs> and uh it's a guy that I talked to a hundred times, you mm-hmm. know. And so I I said, let me, I had a cell. I said, let me text him because he's something's happened on accident. And I said, Hey man, I, you know, as Sean and I reached out to you, I was really hurting. I was gonna see if you could pray with me. And um I said, but you had blocked me on Twitter. I don't know what happened. I'm sure it was an accident. And he just flat out told me, he said, Sean, I saw the things you were saying about police and I just don't support it. And uh, I'm sorry. I just, you know, I can't, I can't support that. And he hung up on me. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, I never tweeted about it or anything like that. I was crushed, man. Mm -hmm. And, And I realized right away that how I saw him was not how he saw me. Right. And that our relationship was more conditional on some things than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And most white pastors that had supported me across those years um, either unfollowed me or blocked me or, you know, just completely distanced themselves from me. And um, it was... It was a a huge shift because now when people know me, they don't even know that that was a big part of my life. Sure. But I saw myself as a bridge builder and um, I didn't burn those bridges, man. They did. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you've experienced all of that, man. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is, Sean, is I believed you know, I, I spoke out early on, right? I, I spoke out around the same time, 2014. Yeah. But I thought it was my delivery. Foolishly, I thought it was, oh, I didn't say it right. So let me let me reframe this mm-hmm. and say it in a nicer way. Let me cater 
to the audience. And um, and I went through this whole process that, that a lot of people end up going through where they're saying, all right, maybe, maybe let me teach you, let me help you, let me walk you through this. And unfortunately, you know, you don't realize that that is um, a, a part of the, uh, it's kind of like the, um, uh, um, you know, foolish mindset that you have that, that you know, somehow you uh, can be, you know, the catalyst for their, the, the societal mm-hmm. society to change their perspective. Yeah. Now, I, I will say, and I know this is true because I know um, people who follow you. I know you've brought people from one side to the other. I know that you have actually built a bridge. I know that you help people say, oh man, I was tripping and now I see it because I interact with some of those people, you know, still, but by and large, yeah, I, I've experienced a similar thing. And, and, and the reality of it is, is that, man, there's such a lack of experience um, as far as, you know, the, the, that typical suburban white Christian space with where, what we come from and what we have experienced, right? So they, they don't have the type of exposure and experience to police officers that we have. I grew up seeing police officers getting paid off to mm. do stuff. I grew up seeing crooked cops. I grew up seeing cops, you know, I've been ripped out of my car and, and, and harassed and, and trashed and seen family members beaten up. So that's not their experience. So they cannot, they can't fathom it. And then you you mesh that with this idea that you know it just helps to know history it helps to understand all oh, the police force was created to to track slaves right and that's some of the historical understanding that they didn't have the 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 benefit i think in our in our time period is that we have access to the internet and information and so people can actually do the research themselves that's what i had to learn i'm Y'all got to go do your research. It's not my job to become the library, to become your teacher. Now, if there's some folks out there who want to do that, more power to them. That's not me. Um, I had to learn myself. And um, and I think it's sad because I've lost some friends. I, I have a lot of friends who are done with, you know, any type of faith. I have friends who are done with any interaction with people outside of their race or community. And um and unfortunately, it's because they've had experiences similar to what you've just had. You know what I mean? It's, it's people have just turned their back on them altogether. And, uh, and and I think it's uncalled for. Well, you know, I think even as I think back to your book, man, it, some of it, even for me, the journey has been where, what is the problem? Is, is mm-hmm. the problem the, is it, is it the faith itself? Mm-hmm. Is the problem the way the religion has been constructed in the American context, how much of this is culture that's been imposed on top of the religion and, and how can we dig, dig through all of that to find the thing that long ago ignited our heart Mm -hmm. that had, that had almost nothing to do with the things that now tear us away from it. And I, I think it's hard because as as we record this, uh, tomorrow is uh, Trump's last day in office. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for a lot of people who have seen themselves as Christians to see other people 
very sincerely, earnestly say that they are Christians as well. Yeah. And yeah. but their actions be so damaging mm-hmm. to to you and um and dangerous. Those quote unquote patriots were praying when they stormed into the into the Capitol building. Yeah, I saw I saw a post that you had made and you know, you know, there was a video that just came out. And a lot of people were shocked at how religious of an event the whole storming of the Capitol was. Like, they didn't understand that. Like, when you said they were praying, no, 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 really. They were literally holding hands and praying, closing their eyes and bowing their heads. Mm-hmm. They felt deep. And it, you'd have, to be, you'd have to be in these circles to understand that they weren't faking. It wasn't a charade. They believe it. Yep. And and so I see a lot of black folk in particular say like, listen, if if that's Christianity, then yep. whatever it is I'm practicing is something else because yep. whatever that is is not the same thing I am practicing and believing. Yeah. How? Or, or even I want to. Pra- I don't want to practice that. Yeah. Yeah. If that's if that is your religion, whatever it is you call that, yep. that's not the same thing I'm feeling over here. Right. Where here we are, 2021, like where where have you settled on that? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question. And 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 I, I, well, one, I would say this, I would say, you know. Um, there's some people out there who, who they're not asking this question. You know, this is this is an affirmation to them of what they always believed. Mm-hmm. And I would say. You're right. And then there's some people who are asking this question and they're saying, is this the faith? And I would say it's not. But it is. Right. It's the faith that we have come to see in this part of the world. You know, it, uh, as, as I was mentioned on on uh, on, on online, it's that the, there were chaplains on slave ships. Right. They prayed over those bombs that attacked Japan. There were anti-Semitic writings from these uh, fathers of the faith, Martin Luther, that the, the, yeah. the Germans used to destroy the Jews and you know, slave owners use the Bible to justify their actions. And, you know, you you can go just just go 50, 60 years back and see the Bible being purported and used to justify se- segregation. And so I that is the Christianity of America. I call it America Christianity. Right. That is the faith that's been purported. And I would want nothing to do with that as well. And I think it's unfortunate that it has been prostituted and used kind of like the book of Eli for these ill-gotten gains. Um, when in fact, you know, this is an Eastern faith. When in fact it it was started in Northern Africa, in the in the Eastern world, when in fact there were no European uh you know founding fathers of this, you know, uh right. belief. And and my goal is not to to just convince people of that. My goal is to, one, to tear down this this Christian nationalism that exists in our country right now, mm-hmm. where people can hide behind the Bible and hide behind faith and do these heinous acts and, and be racist and uh, commit acts of brutality. Um, because at the end of the day, when you exalt your nation above humanity, then that is the, the the that's the picture of idol worship. That's the picture of anything. But what what you what I've known you historically to do is do it 
the right way, right? The the God I see, the Christ I see, is always caring about the marginalized and the disenfranchised and those who don't have a voice. And if that's not what you're doing, if you're wrapped up in all these legalities and and you know what about you know uh, these laws and and you're caught up in all these little minuscule things and you're not caring about the 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 marginalized, the disenfranchised. Well, then you've got it wrong. Well, man, I there there was. My family and I live in Brooklyn, and there was a church that um, I had stopped attending uh, Sunday services, and I would I would go if my wife wanted me to go, <laughs> and um, I had just stopped attending church services altogether, and and I didn't and I wasn't feeling I didn't feel guilty about it or anything. I just stopped going altogether. My and I didn't. Unlike my wife, I didn't grow up in church as a child. And yeah. so for my wife, who grew up going to church four or five days a week, who, whose mother is in ministry, she she really missed the the habit and the 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 tradition. Mm. And so we found this church in Brooklyn where a lot of really beautiful ministry was going on. And the pastor who was uh was a was a white man the pastor i almost I, he almost nailed it instead of being a uh, 90 or 180 degrees off i thought he was maybe 30 degrees off and here was here was the way he was trying to do it his thought was i will never do anything in this this church which was almost exclusively uh, black and brown people that attended the church. He said he would never do anything that was supportive of Trump, uh, never do anything that was overtly political. Mm. But he also wouldn't mention George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or, you know, for him, he, he thought, he thought he was making a sacrifice by not being overtly conservative, but his his way of balancing that out was when something catastrophic happened. Yeah. Where black folk would show up to church that Sunday, hardly even able to get up that morning. Yeah. And man, it was as if George Floyd wasn't even killed. It was as if Rihanna Taylor or Philando Castile, it was as if there was no police brutality. Right. And, it's tough. That's the same. And what I have found is in a lot of particularly like Pentecostal church spaces, the way they've doctored it is, okay, we won't talk about the world at all, Mm -hmm. but we will just focus on this book and the (laughs) lessons, but we won't even mention whatever may be going on in the world. And even that, man, I, I just was like, nah, I can't. I can't support that, you know, like yeah. there's got to be a way that we we address it all, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, let's be candid. I mean, let, let's call it like we see it, right? Like the, the church is dynamic. It's made up of different people. Um, but as far as black people go, it's still the largest black institution in America, right? The problem in my from my perspective right now is that the movement 
for our people. It's you, Black Lives Matter, our current civil, ri- civil rights movement is largely led by young people who are not church. Mm-hmm. And many of them are a part of the LGBT, uh, LGBTQ uh, community. They're, they're, they're queer individuals who struggle with this traditional idea of what church is and is it even a place where they would feel comfortable. Right. And so now you have this church with that's not leading, which that's what it did in the 60s and, you know, it led. And so the church is struggling to figure out how do I get involved in something that I'm not leading? And how do I connect with these people who don't want, who, who may not want to connect with me? Or what if our worldviews clash? And, and so what I see there's don't let me paint a broad picture because there's definitely individuals who are getting out there and mixing it up. And I know these people, I'm one of those people. Yeah. But I think that there's some conversations that just aren't being had as far as that relationship goes. There's a lack of education for a lot of these leaders in, in churches to know the dynamics of what's going on. And I know that's true because I needed education. There was stuff I still needed to learn and I'm out here with the people. And so um, I think that there's folks that they're not talking. Stokely Carmichael needed to talk to Martin Luther King. There there had to be communication in order for them to understand perspective. And and we have too many problems in our community to be fighting amongst each other. We've got to figure out how we can work together in order to fight against these these common woes that we're facing. I think it's I think that's a the the Dr. King and Stokely Carmichael example is a beautiful example and as I think back I don't know that you know when Dr. King first started pastoring in in the early 1950s I don't know that that Dr. King would have hung out with Stokely Carmichael mm. I don't even know if Dr. King in 1960 would have hung out with Stokely because Dr. King in 1960 didn't hang out with the Stokely Carmichaels yeah. Even, even in 1962, 63, 64, you have to almost get to a very different 1965 Dr. King yeah. where all of a sudden he sees that even though the way they expressed the problems were often different, mm-hmm. Oakley Carmichael and Dr. King realized, you know what, we could do a lot more if we were supporting each other. Yeah, And what I'm hoping is that in the black church in particular, that there, that there will be an evolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, and like you, I see some of that. There are, there are exceptions to that. There are some black churches that have been literally on the front line of protests and demonstrations since the beginning of the black lives matter movement, but they are normally the exception. And there's a lot there, man, like um, on why that is. And it's, you know, you name some of it is people feeling like, hey, I'm not even welcome in your church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so what what happened, I think, is sad is that the black church plays such a deep role in every social movement in this country, really, until until very recently. And yeah. um, and people don't want to really confront the painful truth of why that is, but it's primarily because the people that were leading this movement didn't really feel welcomed in a lot of those places, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I know that to be a fact. Um, 
and 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 then of course we we all struggle with homogenization. We all struggle with seeing one group as this and not realizing there's so many nuances to all the groups and all of the dynamics. Um, but a lot of that can be resolved in conversation. You know, a lot of that can be resolved in, in proximity and relationship. Um, and it's gonna it's gonna take learning on both sides. You know, it's it's, it's gonna take. You know, there's a lot to learn on both sides, and I think that's been a large part of the problem. Now, again, those people who are willing to learn and willing to have dialogue and converse and build proximity and relationship, awesome. Um, but when you're not willing to do that, there's always going to be problems. Yeah. Like, you know, I, 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 I look at you and I, and I think, man, that's my guy. Yeah. You know what I mean, I, I, I appreciate it. You, you know, vice versa, but I'm sure if if you and I are saying, hey, let's figure out how to resolve a particular issue, we're going to come to different ends of the spectrum. Now, if we're mature, we can say, all right, I'm looking at how you see things happening and I'm looking at how you see things happen. Let's see if where we can agree and where we can move forward. But yeah. a lot of that's not happening. And um, it, it continues to, to cause, you know, non-activity. You know, um, one of the things... I'm, I've been thinking a lot about Dr. King these past few days. We just passed King Day. And um, a lot of people don't even, even, we often critique uh, conservative culture for how they see conservative white America for how they do Dr. King. Mm -hmm. But even there's, there's some shortchanging of Dr. King, even from the black church tradition. And mm -hmm. I, I think a lot about, how close Dr. King was with Bayard Rustin and Bayard Rustin was, was openly gay and not openly gay in 2021. We're talking about openly gay in the fifties and sixties. And there were so many people who just because of that did not want Dr. King to have anything to do with this man. Yeah. And Dr. King's, there were some real limitations placed on Bayard Rustin because of, of his sexuality and all of the, the, the ways culture played out. But that Dr. King even then still saw the gifts and the brilliance and the skills of this man, who most people said was the primary organizer of the March on Washington yeah. and other things. And it's like, I think we don't even give Dr. King enough credit for where he was on, on sexuality, where he was on, on a lot of dynamics that are still getting in our way. Mm -hmm. we think about, well, how do we partner mm -hmm. with other people, other groups in ways that are redemptive? And right. um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of stuff there, man. That's why, you know, for me, <clears throat> um, I think that's where I start getting back as far as my faith is concerned to to origin stories and understanding, you know, what was the, the original intent of a lot of these, you know, origin stories and, and cultural narratives, because oftentimes we're trying to create narratives that were never there. We're trying to paint pictures that were never painted. And I love the season we're in now in terms of the information age, because it's all there. It's yeah. all right there. You know, Dr. King and, and the FBI, that information is in front of us now. We can yeah. see set up. We can see, you know, all of these things when historically this information was hidden from us. And so I feel the same way. 
I think um I think unfortunately the the church oftentimes has had to catch up to what's happening on the front lines and then figure out where to and then you also got to remember too especially uh, larger uh churches um they they're as, as it pertains to society they're trying to figure out a way to work in and through it and a, a lot of activists are trying to upend it right like let's yeah. turn over this infrastructure and the church is trying to figure out how do we work within the infrastructure and so there, there's even got to be some some thoughts on that like that are there there's opportunities in time to care about policies to care about you know some of these particular things that a, a younger uh less mature individual may not understand they just know that something's wrong and and i have a voice and i have a rock in my hand mm. and uh and so they want to turn this institution upside down or break it and shatter it and you know we need to understand that there's strength in numbers. We need to understand that there's power in numbers. I, I don't think Georgia would be the uh, blue this go round if if people did not depend on some of those institutional mindsets instead yeah. of just saying I'm done with it all. I'm not voting. Right. Uh, people use that that collective power to do, to do what they wanted to see done. Yeah, I mean, so much so that a black church pastor literally elected to the United States Senate, you know, and there've been a few pastors elected to the house, but there's never been a pastor elected to the Senate. And, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm excited. Um, Reverend Warnock is a smart, brilliant guy. I'm excited to see how he balances even like he hasn't talked. I'm sure he's talked about it in his church, but I'm even excited to see how does he balance his responsibilities as a pastor with now his, his, his responsibilities as a legislator. Right. And, um, but so many forces came together, man. Um, one of the things before we go, I, I wanted to talk with you about, um, work that you try to do at the intersection of prisons and incarceration. And mm-hmm. you and I both, you know, care deeply about not just changing, um, the policies there, but also caring for the people who are incarcerated. And there, you know, both, both things are important. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you've been trying to do there? Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> uh, I've been passionate about, um, similar to you, I didn't grow up in uh, a, a church institution or infrastructure. I, I actually grew up going to visit my uncles in prison and, uh, and, you know, my father was in and out of prison. And so these are individuals that I I know and love and care for. Yeah. And and uh, I watched my grandmother uh, care for the needs of individuals in similar circumstances. And I just took that to heart. And so what I began to do was say, well, how do I um, serve? And so honestly, my first church was a juvenile detention center. You know, that's where I would go regularly and. Um, and, and I began to understand the culture and, and, and the affinity and, and grew an affinity for seeing, you know, transformation happening there. And so now moving forward, um, you just realize, man, it is a disaster. You know, yeah. just the, the whole setup is upside down. It, these are literally people that society has thrown away. Yeah. Um, and, and not and, and doesn't care that they've thrown these people away. And uh, and because that's my family members and because it could easily be me, it could easily be you. 
um, I'm always in investigating on ways in which I can help there. So it could be something as simple as, you know, we just did a campaign called Mass for the People. Uh, shout out to Michael McBride. Um, yeah. But we got together and we just made sure that uh, uh, incarcerated individuals across the country had uh, the the needs had their needs met as far as um, safety, security, sanitization, masks, so on and so forth yeah. uh, to survive the COVID. Um, we also uh, campaigned for pregnant women uh, to be released yeah. because of COVID. Um, after seeing mothers die uh, from from you know COVID, you know while they're pregnant and, and the children surviving, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as of late, it, it's it's mostly been just doing a lot of advocacy work. It's, it's yeah. making sure that, uh, you know, people are are represented fairly. People are properly. I have a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, um, you know, who just did 20 years and was found innocent, you know, um, after spending 20 years of his life in prison. And so now he's got a lawsuit and I'm tired of lawsuits because yeah. the millions of dollars that he may get is not going to make up for the time that he's lost. No, 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 it, it never could. And, and, you know, I work with so many families who've either dealt with wrong, wrongful convictions or had their loved ones killed by police, which is all a part of the mass incarceration system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those fam- any one of those families would rather just have their loved one back. Absolutely. Any, any check that gets written. And I'm also tired. It, it, okay, if you're not going to change the laws, write the check. But all of us would rather the policies, the yeah. actions, all of that stuff change. And it's such a waste, man. But, brother, I'm, I'm proud of you in a hundred different ways. And uh, I'm grateful that you're still sharing your story and your life, not just through your music, but uh, through the written word. And I've always seen you as a, even, even for people who see you as a music artist, writing is, it, it was central to all of that. And so... Mm-hmm. Mm, that's good. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad to see uh, that people will be able to kind of sit and marinate with your book in a way that's different than a song. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I encourage people to check it out and to get it, man. Um, I know people can get your book in bookstores everywhere. Yeah. Is there is there a place you prefer, or is there a place where people can read more about it? Yeah, I mean, feel free to check out my website, just lecrae.com, L-E-C-R-A-E. Uh, give you a lot of information about all the different things that I got going on, especially the book, uh, which I think could be very helpful. You know, I, I'm I'm going I'm to go there in the book. I'm going to talk about the, the Trump uh, presidency. I'm going I'm going to talk about, you know, race and the intersection of faith and, and injustices and um, and hopefully give some clarity for a lot of people, man. And so I, I appreciate you as well, bro. I mean, sincerely, it's like you telling news that that doesn't often get told. So, brother, I appreciate you, man. If you need anything, just let me know. Let's keep on pushing. Always. Break it down. Hey, everybody. I want to tell you about a podcast that I love a lot. And it's not because there's a woman that I love who is the co-host, my dear wife, Ray. But she is co-hosting a brilliant, important, essential podcast called Woke at Work with Dr. Blanca Ruiz. It's an amazing podcast about women of color in the workplace and all of the unique challenges and opportunities and sophistications. And they have brilliant interviews and they unpack the myriad of issues 
what it really means to be a woman of color in leadership, in the workplace, and so much more. You spell it W-O-C at work. W-O-C at work. Women of color at work. Search it. It's on all of the platforms now. It's getting amazing reviews, and I want you to check it out.